you all here with us this morning as we come to this season where we spend particular time remembering the birth of Christ, although I don't know if it's any more for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, we, we, we are always remembering the fact that Christ became man in order to take the punishment of our sins. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and uh, turn to 2 Peter. I'm not going to read quite yet, but we'll be in 2 Peter 1, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses, uh, and I'll read through 1 through 11, but we'll be focused in verses 5 through 7 this uh, morning. I wrote here my notes, 1 Peter 2, 5 through 7, but that's not true. 2 Peter 1, and we'll focus on verses 5 through 7. I had a discussion with the men in my care group this uh, week uh, about white elephant gifts. We're going to have a little care group Christmas party, and I was under the idea that white elephant meant the kind of, of gift giving where you could steal things. Uh, and they said that it actually has more to do with, with like, a bad gift, which was disappointing to me because although it was a $10 limit, I'm like, well, what can you find that's quality for $10? So I did my part. Uh, but it turns out that the dictionary says that it is a, a white elephant gift is a, a possession, unfortunately, that is useless or troublesome, especially one that is expensive to maintain, or here's the tricky part, difficult to dispose of. So as we host our uh, white elephant gift exchange, I hope there's nothing that's difficult to Exposed of, and maybe some of you have received over the years a white elephant gift. I remember one time I was at a at a gift exchange and opened up a, a box full of AOL CDs. Now they're as useful now as they were when I received these this box. And I don't know if you've ever done this. If you go to any white elephant uh, uh, gift exchange parties, I think this is a great thing to do, unless it's at my house, is that you leave the gifts there. Hey, have any of you ever done that before? You hide the gifts in that person's house? So for anyone who's hosting, uh, that is your assignment, is to hide the gift in someone's house. So I took these, these CDs, and I hid them as best as, as I could on top of ceiling fan blades and all kinds of things. White elephant gifts are silly. God does not give white elephant gifts to his people. We learned last time in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, about the incredible gifts that God has given. His provision, his resources, his promises that are essential for accomplishing what he calls us to do. We saw in 2 Peter 1 that God has given us the spiritual resources that we need to exert the effort we need to obey him. And these resources are not not white elephant gifts that we're supposed to hide till next year's parties. As I said, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter 1. I'm going to read again in verse 1, and I'll work up to verse 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, or of like standing, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, looking back at those resources in verses 3 and 4, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. This morning, we'll be focusing in the middle there in verses 5 through 7. 
And this morning we'll see seven qualities that Christians are commanded to cultivate through the resources that God has given. Seven qualities that Christians are commanded to cultivate, not through our own strength, through the resources that God has given. First, we're going to look uh, briefly and review the resources God has given us for this cultivating. So let's review first the resources for cultivating. Verse 5 begins, Now, for this very reason also, last time we were in in 2 Peter a couple weeks ago, we looked at, at the inexhaustible resources. The resources our gracious God provides us so that we can exert effort, so that we can spend energy in pleasing Him. In verse 3, and I'm going to try to review quickly, although if you haven't listened to the message, please uh, go, go back and do so. You can find it online. These verses are powerful. In verse 3, we saw how God's power provides the required resources, what was our outline point. And in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, we saw that His divine power that this is the source of where these resources come from, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There is the sufficiency, everything that we need to live a life pleasing to him, through the true knowledge of him, and that is where these resources come from, through our true knowledge, our, that knowledge we gain when we come first to a saving awareness of Jesus Christ, when we are brought new life through faith, who called us by his own glory and excellence. And that's the guarantee that we have the resources that we need, that God does this by his glory and excellence. So we saw God's power provides these resources in verse 3, but we also saw God's promises guarantees our our transformation in verse 4. It says, For by these he has granted to us, and by these looks back to his glory and excellence, For his reputation, for the sake of his name, he's granted to us, that's the source, his precious and magnificent promises. We see the value of those promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And the purpose there, this is the first part, become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we become little gods, but that we share God's new and that we have a new nature made like Christ, that Christ is the firstborn among many brothers, that we are given new life in Christ, that we are made to be like him, that we have new appetites and new desires and new abilities. We have this new nature. And then there's a second part of that purpose, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by, by, by lust, that we've been rescued. We've been liberated from the rottenness that had once captivated us. I just wanted to review so that we see the tremendous resources that God has given us. Everything we need for life and godliness through these precious and great promises. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you can't come and say, I can't do that. Now you can say, I can't do that on my own. But if you are in Jesus Christ, you are able to exert effort in pleasing him. We exalted the grace of God last time in giving us these resources needed to obey the commands that he's given. And we have to remember that God's commands and the resources he gives flows from the same righteous river. God is right. He does right. His commands flow from him as does his grace to obey those commands. The same mouth of mercy utters, I command and I provide. God is not fork-tongued. He's not not hypocritical. He's not two-faced. He doesn't have an angry command-giving face and then you spin him around in a happy resource-giving face. He's not Grinch and Santa Claus. Although sometimes we think about that. Oh, his commands. Oh, he's kind of angry. Oh, but then he gives grace. Oh, well, that's good. See, his holy commands are as praiseworthy and as precious as his transforming grace. The only way we can truly love God is if we truly love him as he is. As both lawgiver and as loving Lord. That is what it means to love God. We must not be children eager for gifts, but rejecting the commands he gives. 
So if you have come to a true knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, if all your hope is in him, you can anticipate the, the command he gives this morning. You can anticipate it. You can look expectantly and say, what are we going to unwrap? It's a command. This is good. We're going to unwrap a command that he gives in his grace. And we can be so encouraged because he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So you don't have to be afraid as you look at the command he gives this morning. So let's look next. We, we look at the resources to cultivate. Let's, let's look at the command to cultivate next. The command to cultivate we see it there in the beginning of, of verse 5, but I, I want to caution here. The command is not when it says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, that's not, the, that's not the command there. Or in ESV, it sounds even more like a command, make every effort. The command follows a, a couple words further. I'll read in numeric standards. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, so, so, so in your faith, supply. And that is the command there. The command is supply. Or in ESV, it's translated as supplement. Or maybe some of you have, have memorized this in the King James Version or NIV, and it's add. Add, supplement, or, or, or supply. Now, this word, supply, is a fascinating word. The definition means to provide at one's own expense, to furnish something. The Apostle Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower, the person who gives seed to the person sowing, and bread, the person who supplies bread for food, and then he uses a verb form of the same word, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's this idea of giving what is needed. Now, this is very strange in the context, right? Verses 3 and 4 just talks about God giving us all the resources that we need. And now Peter's saying, now you supply. The etymology of this word is a wealthy benefactor providing for the performance of a choir for a public celebration. Imagine a local business funding a high school, uh, a, a, a high school pr production to remember Pearl Harbor. Or uh, a local business putting uh, on a Veterans Day celebration or a parade through town. Or even buying banners at a sporting event. All of those words there have this idea of supplying, of furnishing, of, of putting up what's necessary to put on a show. Now that is a fascinating word in this context, right? We are, Peter's saying, now pay out of your pocket. You give your resources to finance something. But he's not talking about money here. He is focusing on, now it's time for you to bring something to the table in your sanctification. Now that might make some of you a little nervous. Peter's saying, now you, out of your pocket, out of your abundant resources, supply to your faith, add to your faith, supplement to your faith cooperate in God's grand production, his display for his glory by utilizing his resources. See, you are commanded to supply, you're commanded to supplement, but not to your salvation. Not to your salvation. You being saved, you being made right with God is monergistic. God does the work alone. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, just, and we could pick so many passages, powerful here. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Salvation is God's work. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is what God does in saving us. We have nothing to supplement to our salvation, but we do supplement 
to our sanctification. And I'm going to explain this by God's grace. Where our salvation is monergistic, it's the work of God alone. Our sanctification is synergistic. We work along with God. We work with God who enables our work. We work with God who enables our work. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying save yourself, but he's talking about obedience, for it is God who is at work in you, verse 13, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in us so that we have the desire and the ability to work for his good pleasure. So when we read verses three and four, and we look at these tremendous resources, these great and precious promises that God has given to us, we are not just to be content having these resources. Right? God has, in a sense, filled our spiritual bank vaults, and we are to make expenditures from those bank vaults. We are to supply, we are to supplement, we are to work toward obedience. Could you imagine a child opening up a Lego set on on Christmas morning and flipping through that instruction manual, maybe analyzing some of the, the unique components and never building it, just leaving it there. See, God doesn't give you spiritual resources to stuff between your mattresses, right? He doesn't want you to roll them up and, and tuck them away where they're safe. He has bankrolled your obedience through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He has given you everything you need so that you can reach into your spiritual resources and pull out effort so that you can work at obeying. He wants you to furnish, to supply this Christ-exalting celebration. Our lives really are to be about putting on a show for his glory. How can I become more pleasing to him with the resources that he's abundantly supplied to us? This is good news. It'd, it'd, be, it'd be rough if it were just commands with no grace. But he's given you all of the resources so that you can supply, so that you can supplement, so that you can add. So what is this spiritual production that we're to put on with God's resources? What is this, this parade for his glory in our lives? Well, let's look at these seven qualities to cultivate. Now, I know some of you are probably great at math, and you may have read eight here. But I think, really, Peter wants us to focus on supplying, adding, supplementing with these seven qualities. So we're going to look at a, a, a couple qualifications before we, we uh, or, or, or a couple cla clarifications before we get into verses five to seven. First, uh, and I'll read through first here. In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So let's look at a couple of clarifications before looking at them. First, these qualities are not like levels of a video game. You don't wait to go on to the next one until you finish the previous one. Imagine waiting to master self-control. I'm, I'm going to really get the self-control thing down before giving attention to brotherly kindness. The church would fall apart. Okay, so you don't level up in one and then go on to the next one. Second, here, here is a second clarification. There's nothing, that, there's nothing Peter says to indicate you should focus on one of these qualities and ignore the others. These are all essential. We are commanded to supply all of them. And there's many similar lists like this in Scripture. Now, there may be wisdom in focusing on one quality for a certain amount of time particularly if you're in the process of repenting. You're like, whoa, I, I, I am deeply convicted about, brother, about brotherly kindness. I really need to focus on that. Okay. You know, and that may be beneficial, but be in guard 
If you're attempting to grow in one area and really are saying, yeah, I'm just not going to worry about the others right now. It's possible, and I, and I don't know your heart, it's possible you may be pursuing your own achievement. And your, your life may really be about meeting your own standards or even kind of leveling up more than God's pleasure. And I think we see that with, with self-control often. We can put a lot of energy towards these besetting sins, but not worry about all these other areas. So who's that about? Is that about you or is it about God's pleasure? So there's just a caution there. In my experience, and it's just my experience, in tempting sanctification in one area while delaying obedience to the rest of God's commands seldom results in lasting change. You might want to put all your energy into this one area, and maybe that's okay for a period of time. But if you're intentionally then saying, I'm just going to focus here and ignoring the rest, I mean, do you think God wants that to work? I want to focus on self-control, but I'm not really worried about love. Third, I don't think Peter intends faith here to be a quality to cultivate. And so that's where you can see in that list, there are eight. I think faith is the starting point. And it's difficult to be certain. Because the word faith can either refer to our saving faith, our trust in God's promises by which God brings us from death to life, or it could be our faithfulness to God, our, 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 our loyalty, our following through on what we said we're going to do. Because both of those words are the same word in Greek. If faith was in the middle of this list, I'd say that Peter is emphasizing our faithfulness, our, our following through with what we say we're going to do. But Peter begins this list with faith, and he's already talked about this faith in verse 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. I think he's talking about the beginning, our saving faith. So build upon your saving faith. Don't be content with this, with this hope in this gospel. Don't be content with how you came to know Christ. Build upon that. Expand upon that. Make the most of this saving faith. Really, the false teachers had a kind of faith. It just wasn't added to. It, it wasn't an effective faith. Our faith is the field in which these seven qualities that follow flourish. It is only as we have Jesus Christ as our true and only hope that we flourish in these other qualities. From this faith, from this, from this faith through which we are, are united to the divine nature, through which we are escape the corruption that is in the world by lust, then we can cultivate these qualities. So let's look at these, these seven qualities that follow our faith. The first is our it's moral ex. Excellence, excuse me. It's moral excellence. Or in ESV, it's called virtue. Or some, or some of you may have memorized this as goodness. It's the same word used of Jesus in verse 3 that's translated as excellence there. It means accomplishment, achievement. And one commentary writes about this word. It's the proper fulfillment of anything. The excellence of a knife is to cut. The excellence of a horse is to run. So it's talking about being all that you can be, kind of. The focus, though, is the same as in verse 3. Be morally excellent. And that's how it was used of Jesus. Praiseworthy, morally excellent, faultless, virtuous. See, Christ exemplified this excellence Peter's talking about here. He was the perfect human, the standard for all humans, the only one who obeyed God's law perfectly. To be morally excellent is to be human like Christ was human, to have the compassion of Christ, the mercy of Christ, to have Christ's hatred of sin and his love of righteousness, to enjoy spending time with the Father like Christ did, it's to have the work ethic of Christ, the boldness of Christ, the humility of Christ, the joy of Christ, the sadness of Christ, 
the faith of Christ, the self-control of Christ, the wisdom of Christ. See, anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. And he is to cultivate this new nature. This is what being a disciple is, to become like Jesus Christ, to be Christ-like. Christ was a perfectly praiseworthy human. And for us to be morally excellent is to become transformed increasingly like Jesus Christ. Do you seek to utilize the resources that God has given to be as Christ-like, to be as blameless, to be as praiseworthy as possible, to be morally excellent, to fulfill your purpose. Now, I know that that's a high standard. Morally excellent, all of these are going to be high standards. And we'd wither if it weren't for God's resources. We know that this is not an, ins an instantaneous, that we become that overnight. But we want to become as much like Christ, as morally excellent as Christ as possible. The first quality is, is moral excellence. The second is knowledge. Peter uses a different Greek word for knowledge than the word he used previously. The focus in verse 5 isn't salvation knowledge that brings us into that right relationship with God for the first time. Or in verse 3, we saw that as, as true knowledge, you know, this, this, this knowledge that is an eye-opening knowledge, a knowledge when you first get who God is and how desperately we need a Savior for the first time. He's, he's not talking about the same kind of knowledge here. One commentator writes, the knowledge here is not that fundamental knowledge of God and Christ, which makes a person a Christian. He goes on and says, the wisdom and discernment which the Christian needs for a virtuous life and which is progressively acquired. That's the knowledge here. Wisdom and discernment, which the Christian needs for a virtuous life, for a morally excellent life, and which is progressively acquired. It's practical rather than purely speculative wisdom. So Peter's focus here is not, is not abstract or academic or, or theoretical. Not that any of those things are wrong. He, he's not saying you should know the books of the Bible or know difficult answers to theological questions, although all that can be valuable. This knowledge of God is knowing God relationally and understanding his will in a way that turns into God-pleasing obedience. It's the way that knowing his holiness results in our distaste of sin, right? The more we know him, the less appealing sin is. It's knowing his care. And so that we learn what it looks like to trust him when we begin feeling anxious. It's knowing his mercy in a way that leads you to show mercy to others. It's knowing in a way that results in Christ's character being formed in our lives. It's not just, just knowledge in a systematic theology that you fold. It's knowledge in a systematic theology that transforms you. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about the same kind of knowledge. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's that knowledge of his will. How do we please God? How do, how do we listen to what he says and work that out in our lives, in our work world, in our parenting world, in our marriage roles, in our relationships as brother and sister in Christ? Is your knowledge of God leading you to please him? Real knowledge, the kind, the, kind he's, the kind he's talking about here, knowing him and knowing his instructions will lead you to increasingly please him. It's a great focus for our Bible times. What does his word reveal about who he is? And what does his word reveal about what he wants from me? Who's God and what does he want from me? That, those are great questions to take away from this morning's sermon or any sermon. That's the kind of knowledge it's talking about. First quality is moral excellence. Second is knowledge. Third is self-control. 
Now, this word that, 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 that Peter uses, and, and he does this some in, in 2 Peter, he reaches out for, for a really kind of popular Greek word. And self-control was prized in the Greek world, although this was a word, this Greek word is rarely used in the New Testament. It's a word that means dominion over self. You've, you're controlling your passions, your emotions, your desires, instead of being controlled by them. And I'm going to quote some, some Aristotle here, because it's, it's fascinating. The, the unrestrained man, so the person who lacks self-control, does things that he knows to be evil under the influence of passion, where the self-restrained man, that self-restrained is the same Greek word here that Peter uses, the self-restrained man, knowing that his desires are evil, refuses to follow them on principle. And he, here's, here's what gets really useful. The self-restrained man is the man who abides by the results of his calculations. Abides by the result of his calculations. The unrestrained one who readily abandons the conclusion he has reached. So he talks about two different kinds of people. There's one who abides by the result of his calculations. He knows that something is not pleasing to God. No, that's not what Aristotle would say. Uh, it, he knows it's not pleasing to God. And no, it, it is not why Jesus Christ died. He knows the consequences, the shame that's going to follow, the repentance that's going to have to follow. Well, the, the self-controlled person does the calculation, says, nope, not going to do that. The unrestrained person abandons the conclusions he has reached. Brothers and sisters, are you in the habit of choosing what is best? Or are you on a leash? You know, is your master, your appetites leading you around? Are you, is your master, your passions leading you around? Is your master, your emotions leading you around? Or are you self-controlled? Do you live by this knowledge, these, these biblical-based calculations of what is good, of what brings the most joy? I've talked to, 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 several, you, to several of you over time, and you've, you've shared that one of the most joyous experiences is sharing the gospel. It can be heartbreaking if someone doesn't receive the gospel, but when you are sharing that gospel with someone, it's so real to you, and you're so thankful and, and, and you're so in love with the Lord, right? We know where there's joy. Well, what does our math lead us to do? Does it lead us to share the gospel more? Or we know what happens when we ignore God's word and we stay up far too late watching things that we shouldn't, right? What are your calculations doing? Are they transforming you into the image of Christ? Or are you ignoring them? See, self-control, and where for Aristotle, it was just this, I, this being this ideal self. It's, it was principles, but we have so much better motive. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. This is why we want to be self-controlled, to make these, these good biblically-based calculations of what is best and what's valuable so we can be pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all, so that those who, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That is good biblical math. He died so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. We know what we ought to do, to live for him who loved us and gave himself for us. That is, is self-control. Self-control calculates and says, I won't. Where the next quality of perseverance or steadfastness says, I will. Right? Where self-control says, nope, I'm not going there. It's not worth it. Endurance and steadfastness and perseverance says, I will. I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to continue the course it comes from two Greek words, this, 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 this word translated perseverance. It's to remain under. It's the capacity to hold out and to bear up in the face of difficulty. In the Greek world, it had the idea of courage. 
I'm going to persevere. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to be brave. But for Christians, it's more than courage. It's confidence. It's confidence in God's character and in the completion of his promises. One one commentator writes, this patience, this, this endurance, this steadfastness, it's no stoic quality of accepting all that comes as from the dictates of blind fate. Instead, this perseverance springs from faith in the promises of God, in the knowledge of Christ, in the experience of his divine power, everything from verses 3 and 4. And so the commentator continues, it produces in the Christian a deepened awareness of a father's wise and loving hand controlling all that happens. Like Jesus himself, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, we are enabled to see our apparent misfortunes in the calm light of eternity. And that is what endurance is. For the joy set before us, right? It's again, it's more biblical math. We know what's coming. We know the certainty of God's promises. And so we endure. So we endure when we are sick. And we endure when we are tempted. And we endure when we are persecuted. And we endure when we are bankrupt. And we endure, we endure, we keep going. Because we know what God's promises are. James 1 verses 2 through 4 says, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We count it joy because we are we are producing endurance and this endurance is going to have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing trials are where you are refined so you endure you stay there you say i will self-control does the math and says i won't do that endurance does the math and says i will stay here i will continue Steadfastness calculates God's promises and his character and says, I will, I will remain humble. I will remain waiting. I will remain submissive. I will remain trusting. I will remain until Christ either takes me home or he returns. So the first quality is is moral excellence. The second is knowledge. Third is self-control. Fourth is perseverance. And the fifth is is godliness. And we explored this this word some in verse 3 where it says that God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Godliness is living appropriately to God's presence. It's living with respect, living with reverence, good picture is Moses taking off his sandals in front of the burning bush. It's knowing you're on holy ground when you're in God's presence. It's living circumspectly, cautiously, dependently. Now that doesn't mean living as if God's not our Father. That's the great beauty of the gospel. We can live with his godliness, with his right respect to God, and still know him as Father through the incredible work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's living as, in God's presence as creator and as king, as redeemer and as sustainer. There's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo, living before God in the presence of God, before the face of God. It's realizing you are before God who's both compassionate father and consuming fire at the same time. In verse 3, Peter specifically said that God has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. But here, Peter points, points out that God's resources must be matched by our effort. You have what you need for godliness, and now you're going to need to exert effort to be godly. So we must exert effort in becoming the kind of people who please him when no one else is there. In all the details of life, when we know that he is watching, godliness, to be comfortable in his presence, though he's holy. It's a great question about the things that we see in the media. Are we comfortable in his presence, though he's holy? Peter has another quality here. It is brotherly kindness, the six or 
or in ESV, it's brotherly affection. And maybe brother, brotherly affection gets a little bit closer. It's more than just kindness, where kindness can mean so many things. Really, the focus here is more on the brother part. It is family. Now, we're going to see here in verse 7, there are two Greek words that really could be translated as love. There is brotherly kindness, which is the Philadelphia word. Or there's love, which is the agape word. And both of them could be translated as love. We know from other portions of Scripture that these words can, can be used interchangeably at times, or at least very, 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 very close to so. Both of them have a lot to do with our word love. But here, Peter reveals that there's a difference, and, and context makes it clear. He's talking about two kinds of love. He's not just choosing to end his list with, sin, with, with, with synonyms. He doesn't say, and there's love, and then there's love. He really wants to focus with this brotherly kindness word, this, this affection word, this special bond siblings in Christ have. It's about family devotion. It's a love that's based on relationship, a love that's based on shared blood. And whose blood do we share? The blood of God's own son shed for us to make us his children, to give us new life in Christ. See, every member of the Christian community is to, without exclusion, be the beneficiary of this kind of love. And so while I'm preaching to you, it's a good time to look around. And we're going to take a second. I've done this before. I think it's good to remind yourselves, look around at who's next to you. Survey the room. It's good to do. See, sometimes we get used to our care group. We make a few friends. No, this is where our brotherly affection goes. For all who are in Christ, our brothers and sisters with whom we will spend eternity. This kind of, of love, and, and, and our brother Francis was praying about it this morning. It's, 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 it's not based on our jobs. It's not based on our education. It's based on God's election on him choosing us all as children of being adopted into the same family. This kind of, of love would have been culturally shocking in the ancient world. Maybe in, in, in America we have some kind of ideal of it. We talk about, uh, about brotherhood. We know that putting it into practice is a different thing. And, and, it, and, it, and it is for us here too. It's why it has to be cultivated. It's why we can command that we greet one another with a holy kiss, with real affection. That, that kind of kiss would have been, been within a family or close friends. It's theologically based. It comes from having been born of God, of, of participating in the divine nature. 1 Peter 1, Peter talks about this as part of the reason why you've been saved. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls... Why? For a sincere love of the brethren. That's what he's talking about. Love of the brethren here. Fervently love one another from the heart. Brotherly affection is characterized by commitment. Are you committed to one another in this room? And again, Peter's not limiting to this just to our church. Are you faithful to one another? Do you preserve unity with one another? Do you have unbreakable bonds with one another? Do you forgive one another when they wrong you? Do you have sympathy towards one another? Towards, do you have pity for one another? Do you sacrifice for one another? Are you devoted to one another? Many of you have brothers and sisters that that describes, like earthly brothers and sisters, that describes your earthly relationship well. I would do anything for them, and no matter how many times they cross me, I am still their brother. I'm still their sister. Is that the, the familial affection we have for one another? It must be cultivated. I got preachy. I'm running behind. Okay, love here. Love. It's not chance that Peter puts this last. He began with faith for a reason because it's the beginning of where all of these qualities can, can overflow in our lives. And he ends 
probably a little like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now, faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, again, clearly you aren't to master the other qualities before getting to love, and you shouldn't master love before getting to the other qualities, but love does motivate all of these. What is love? This agape word love, and it can be used for all kinds of things. It is the love that values and that acts accordingly. A love that values and acts accordingly. It could be used of love of food, which you know what to act accordingly is to eat it. The nature of love is to value and to act accordingly. And we most obviously see God's love and his love for his enemies and his love for those who are his rebels. Matthew 5, verses 44 to 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons, so that you can be like your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the righteous. We see God valuing his enemies and doing good for them. It becomes even more profound for his elect. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's love and, and his value upon us, it shows more about him than it does about us. Yes, we, we are creatures made in his glory, but we were rebels, we were enemies. He loved us and then gave his son for us. Love seeks the welfare of others, especially those in need. A commentator writes, it's a deliberate desire for the highest good of the one loved. And it shows itself in sacrificial action for the person's good. Love is not passive, but active. Love labors, as Paul says. And so Peter doesn't tell us who we ought to love. He doesn't say, is, it, is he talking about, brother, about brotherly love? Although I think he's already paid attention to that. Is he talking about loving our enemies? It could be. Is he talking about loving God the Father or loving God the Son? He doesn't distinguish. And I'm not sure that, that we should either. Are we appropriately valuing God and responding appropriately? Are we appropriately valuing lost, those who don't know Jesus Christ, and responding accordingly? Are we appropriately valuing our brothers and sisters and responding appropriately? Are we giving of ourselves for their good? Are you seeking to love as God loves so as we look at these seven qualities, I don't doubt that we're like, whoa, this is a lot of work. This is humbling. Seven days in a week. Take one a day and pray through it and analyze where you need to grow through it. It's going to take effort to cultivate these, and that brings us to our last point. There's effort to cultivate. And Peter knows this, so he tells us how much work it's going to take. He did this in the beginning of verse 5. We skipped over it. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, applying all diligence, or ESV, make every effort. Applying, it literally means to bring in besides, to bear in alongside, to contribute. And this word diligence, it, it, it is the earnest commitment in the discharge of an obligation. It's eagerness, it's earnestness, it's willingness, it's zeal. In other words, you could translate this whole phrase as do your best. Try as hard as possible. And this is how we participate in our sanctification. We bring God's resources, right, the resources he gives in our diligence. It doesn't mean we do this independently of God. We're not trying to drum up some resources on our own. We already looked at Philippians 2.13. It's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We never say, oh, look at me. You see that growth in moral excellence? That is all mine. Like, I totally exerted a ton of effort there. It came from me. No, we know that God alone gets the glory. He, gives, he brought you here to hear his word this morning. He gives you the ability to make every effort to supply, to supplement. But we are required to bring zeal to bring diligence. This is our life's work to be as glorifying to Christ as possible, but becoming as much like Christ as possible. So are you willing to put an effort? Are you willing to be diligent?
God's gift of his promises, God's gift of his provision, his resources, everything that he gave in verses 3 and 4. It's not some kind of white elephant gift that we look at and it's like, well, that's interesting. I guess I'm, I'm going to stock that away for next year. Right? Verses 3 and 4, when we look through them, and I pray by God's grace, it was, it was thrilling. Look at the riches here, but now we know what we're to do with them. Right? We're supposed to be building upon the new faith he's giving us. And how do we do this? By exerting effort. And as we exert effort, we know we're going to need to keep coming back to those promises again and again. Because we're going to be disappointed in our lack of growth. And we're going to see failures in self-control, failures in brotherly kindness, failures in godliness. We're going to have to go back. We're going to have to get more grace. But don't stop exerting effort. Don't leave this provision from God in the closet till next year. I'm going to pray, and we're going to have the uh, Lord's Supper in, in a moment. Uh, but if someone could, please uh, tell Children's Ministry that we are running a little behind. I, I would appreciate that. Uh, dear Father, I thank you for your word. And even as we look at uh, your resources, Lord, we know that there's no fault with you. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we look at these qualities, and Lord, it is easy to feel, uh, to feel overwhelmed. These qualities and, and, and what they mean, they're, they're, so, they're so perfect. They were so natural for Jesus and so hard for us. Lord, we know that we are overcoming this, this corruption that is in our flesh through lust, but we know that we've already escaped that. And so we live in this very confusing place, yearning for Christ to come back, yearning for this work to be finished. And yet at times, Lord, we have to confess, not yearning as much as we ought. Lord, we don't exercise the effort we ought. We don't put in the energy we ought. Maybe we do a little and become self-satisfied. Maybe we try a little and be discouraged when we see that we're still sinners and we give up. Maybe we've doubted that you're good, a good master who's given us good resources. Maybe we forget that you are pleased by the imperfect but true efforts of your children. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would feel all kinds of hope from this. Peter's desire is not just to put on us a lot of bricks. You've given all the resources we need. So please, Father, help us to believe in your goodness and to believe the gospel even now that we're going to celebrate. To believe that just as you in your grace rescued us from the punishment of sin, you also gave us new life in Christ so that we can be pleasing to you. Lord, the window is uh, limited. Our lives here are short. Help us by your grace to cultivate these qualities as much as possible in the short time that you've given us for your glory as much as possible. In Jesus' name, amen.